0: Hello everyone, this is Brad Harris with a quick reminder. When you run out of How It Began content, I encourage you to subscribe to my new podcast, Context. In Context, we continue to investigate what created the modern world by considering great books on the subject and distilling their insights. I hope to see you there. The dream is as old as humanity itself to possess the power to know what anyone, anywhere can know, regardless of how far away in space and time. Villains have yearned for such power, of course, but so have heroes and healers, builders and artists, inventors and students of every age and culture. The instinct of humanity to connect and collaborate runs as deeply through us as the instinct to hunt runs through the wolves of the wilderness. But for countless millennia, insights beyond our own were mostly beyond our reach. For a hundred thousand years, the minds of others were accessible only through face-to-face conversation, or through the stories and artwork of far-off times and tribes, warped into myths by the distance of their origin. Eventually, with the development of writing some 5,000 years ago, we took a significant step toward realizing that dream, for writing enabled a much more robust record of knowledge. Libraries grew with the great civilizations of the world, consolidating the insights of minds even long dead. Nonetheless, distance, language, and privilege kept these archives of wisdom inaccessible to the majority of people. And so it went, for many centuries more, until the advent of electronic communication, when the tentacles of telephony and televised media began to encircle the world to transmit news nearly as fast as it happened. The dim glow of a great enlightening had been kindled, but still the daily press and the nightly broadcast failed to encompass most of what people were experiencing and discovering, we remained mostly as we had been, largely disconnected from each other and from the vast repertoire of ideas around the world and through the ages. Even as our march of modern progress landed men on the moon, who gazed back upon the earth to behold its most humble scale in the void of space, Down here on the surface, the spaces between us still made connecting and collaborating with those beyond our immediate social circle a difficult and expensive project. So how is it then, that out of that age-old condition, we suddenly find ourselves now empowered with practically all human knowledge right at our fingertips? After a hundred thousand years of dwelling on our islands of ignorance, how can it be that within a single generation we've built the ultimate bridge to each other, upon which instantaneous and ubiquitous connection and collaboration is possible? We call it the Internet. And in stark contrast to the physical forums of exchange we used to build, this one exists in an entirely new dimension, accessible through the portals of our smartphones and computers. For all time before the Internet, our minds were very much entombed within the arbitrary physical limits of our bodies, our place, and our time. But the Internet enables us to break free of that ancient prison, transcend those conventional boundaries once and for all, and participate finally in a global marketplace of ideas and trade. But how did we do it? How did we create the forum of cyberspace to finally accomplish unfettered connection? What technical genius is responsible for networking our information technology to create a worldwide web of everything that everyone everywhere knows? I give you the internet and how it began.
1: CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik 1, the Soviet Space Satellite. Douglas Edwards reporting. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this Earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. Well, there's very profound concern here, Doug, about world opinion. The dominant conflict of our time, the Cold War, is at present, as everyone knows, in a state of balance between Russia and the West. And in between are those people who are called uncommitted, who may determine who wins, the peoples of Asia, the Near East, and Africa. Russia already enjoys one great attraction for these important peoples, and their ambition is to pull themselves up from primitive agrarian countries to become modern industrial nations. They tend to admire Russia as a nation which was once as backward as they, but which did pull herself up. And now that backward Russia has beaten the West's most advanced nation into the fringes of outer space, their admiration for Russia can be expected to increase. And there may be another consequence. Russia has, in recent months, been threatening nations who grant bases to America. Those threats have not been taken very seriously, but now the world knows that it took a far more powerful projectile than America possesses to push that satellite into its orbit in space. In view of that, Russia's threats may be more effective from now on. Probably no one here in the nation's capital would disagree with one thing that Senator Wiley said. We had better get on our toes. Dr. Newell, what about the vital question that everybody is thinking about? Why and how did the Russians beat us to the draw?
0: Sputnik. The first human-made object ever to reach space was little more than a 185-pound metal ball containing a few primitive instruments and transmitters. And after barely three months in orbit, it listed out of its trajectory and drifted back toward the Earth, only to be consumed in the inferno of atmospheric friction along the way. But despite the modesty of the Soviet Union's first attempt at space, The United States interpreted the launch of Sputnik in October 1957 as nothing less than an existential threat. For if the Soviets could launch a satellite into orbit, what was to stop them from launching nuclear bombs across the world? Although merely an innocuous piece of metal that circled the Earth for a single season, Sputnik symbolized the fundamental role of science and technology in determining global security. Thousands of Americans responded to its periodic presence up in the sky by digging down into the Earth, building shelters to survive a third world war. Similar fears motivated the federal government, meanwhile, to triple the national budget for science and technology. In early 1958, less than a year after Sputnik first sailed overhead, President Dwight Eisenhower created a new division in the Department of Defense entrusted to spearhead the nation's progress, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, called ARPA. Liberally funded and burdened with little oversight, ARPA authorized executive decisions to cut checks in the millions for any projects deemed relevant to national competitiveness, no matter how long-term the potential payoff might be. And since a separate division of the Department of Defense called NASA would handle the activities of the space race, the leaders of ARPA found themselves free to fund any other field of research and development. Almost immediately, they chose computer networking as the most promising path to advance American science and technology. Since the end of World War II, nearly 15 years earlier in 1945, computers had emerged as the most dynamic and transformative tools of industrial and academic research. Computers, after all, had helped the Allies win the war, and they had even defied the national polls and the 1952 presidential election to correctly predict a landslide victory for President Eisenhower himself. The problem ARPA was determined to confront, however, was that for all of their obvious information processing potential, Computers remained so expensive and specialized that most institutions across the country, including the largest universities and research labs, were lucky if they possessed even one of their own. And where computer systems had been installed, individuals were forced to compete with one another for precious hours of computer time. Through the 1950s and 60s, making a more powerful computer generally meant making a bigger computer, for the guts of information processing back then took the unwieldy form of discrete transistors and even vacuum tubes. The faster people wanted to process information, the more of these components a computer needed to contain, and transistors and vacuum tubes ran hot. Before long, computers were so big and generated so much heat that they had to be set up in their own air-conditioned rooms. And to tap into the power of their simmering logic circuits, designated keyboard terminals were wired out to adjacent rooms where researchers could crunch their data more comfortably. But as the power of these so-called mainframe computers increased, Terminal time became ever more coveted, and backlogs of demand accumulated. Yet, in the context of a typical university, for example, where graduate students and faculty alike grew frustrated by their limited computer access, buying additional computers to keep them happy would have been as far-fetched as building a new state-of-the-art laboratory for a complaining chemist. Fortunately though, the problem contained the seeds of its own solution, for researchers were demanding more time on computers in the first place because computers were getting faster. So fast, in fact, that most models were capable of handling the demands of multiple users virtually simultaneously. So, the obvious solution was to wire multiple terminals to a single mainframe, enabling multiple people to use the same computer at the same time. Although mainframes still lacked the power of parallel processing, which meant they could only crunch the data for one user at a time, by around 1960, computers were getting so fast that users wouldn't even notice they were sharing the machine sharing, as this concept was called, was the germ of a giant organism that would one day envelop the world. And in 1962, one of ARPA's most persuasive leaders decided it deserved all the nurturing his agency could provide. Joseph Carl Robnett Licklider, better known by his nickname Lick, was a visionary among visionaries in America's golden age of scientific optimism. Recruited to ARPA in 1962, Licklider brought a far-sighted new perspective into the comparatively myopic field of computer engineering. Whereas most established specialists tended to focus on how to optimize specific computers or programs for specific lines of research, Licklider believed that they should focus instead on making computers as accessible as possible through more expansive time-sharing infrastructure and through more universal programming languages. Computers, in his mind, were to be thought of like a utility, Much like electricity, mainframes could function as the central power plants of information processing, and terminals to access them could be as widely distributed as conventional electric appliances on the grid. Since many computer research groups were already beginning to design time-sharing systems for their own labs, The initial impression was that Licklider would simply fund them to double down on the concept and expand terminal access to neighboring labs and departments. And indeed, through the late 1960s, this became one of the milestones of ARPA's support, by which time the computer industry standard had reached 300 or so terminals connected to every mainframe, accessible to multiple labs and departments, campus or company-wide. But Licklider's ultimate vision went further. He argued that every mainframe, along with its outlying cluster of terminals, should be connected with all other mainframes and their outlying cluster of terminals across the country, so that any researcher anywhere could use whatever mainframe model was most suited to his particular needs, even if it resided a thousand miles away. It was an awesomely disruptive vision of intellectual liberation, and Licklider coined for it a correspondingly awesome name, the Intergalactic Computer Network. Although he did not anticipate that the rise of personal computers decades in the future would obviate certain features of it, Licklider's idea of the intergalactic computer network outlined the concept of the internet as the rest of us would come to know it over the next half century. Computer networking made sense in the 60s for an important reason that has since become obscure, Among the dozen or so different manufacturers of computer mainframes at the time, there was no technical standardization that helped coordinate computer design. Each model boasted a unique set of features, specs, and programming languages, which might be well-suited to some research projects, but inadequate for others. So, with all the competing agendas inherent in academic and corporate communities, It proved perennially difficult for administrators to decide which model they should settle on buying. Whatever choice they made, someone would inevitably be upset. Networking computers, on the other hand, offered a way around this problem. With a diversity of mainframes already installed across the country, money could be better spent on networking access to them. And since ARPA funding was where most universities turned to for computer development, Licklider and his successors had a major influence on inspiring networking in academia, even among institutions otherwise hesitant to share their existing computer resources. Networking, they argued, would save everyone money. The typical ARPA grant issued for a new mainframe through the 1960s ranged from $500,000 to $3 million. And typical university labs regularly spent thousands more flying their members to distant institutions to access whatever specific mainframe model was needed to process their particular data. If national networking between mainframes was achieved, these wasteful expenditures would disappear, freeing up millions of dollars for other investments. But while the value of national networking was accepted in principle, coordinating the national effort it required took years of additional work. And one of the most complicated problems to be solved was how to get all those different mainframe models to work with one another over the network. At a meeting among the leaders of ARPA and the nation's top computer science labs in 1967, the incompatibility problem between mainframes to be networked drove many to be skeptical of Licklider's vision. Operating systems, programming languages, and even hardware specifications differed widely. It was like each mainframe was a country unto itself, with its own laws and language, and no translators to be found. The inescapable fact was that an entirely new kind of computer had to be built. Special-purpose interlocutors designed from the ground up to enable host mainframes to talk to each other. These machines were to be called IMPs, Interface Message Processors, and they would have to comprise the backbone in the body of the nation's networked mainframes. The common language that the IMPs would speak, moreover, would have to be structured totally differently than conventional telecommunication, because for the network to be both scalable and reliable, dedicated lines directly connecting each mainframe were out of the question. Instead, the network's structure would form a fishnet-like pattern through which signals could travel along numerous different paths to reach the same destination. Just like a letter can be carried along multiple routes on its way from Boston to San Francisco, depending on the driver's judgment about how to most efficiently navigate changing road conditions and closures, information sent through the ARPANET as the internet was originally called, would have redundant routing options in case some parts of it went down. Ideally, no mainframe would ever be cut off from the rest. If a hub at the University of Utah went offline, MIT's mainframe in Boston could still network with Stanford's south of San Francisco via mainframes at Texas and UCLA and the postal system provided yet another example to follow. Just like letters were mailed in standardized postmarked packets, communication among mainframes through their associated IMPs would be sliced into standardized data packets too, allowing for more efficient transmission through the network's fishnet-like architecture. Packet switching, as this principle was called, became the keystone upon which the entire viability of the Internet would rest. An analogy that the innovators of packet switching often used to describe it centered on the idea of home construction. To build a house, you moved lumber, nails, and sheetrock to the home site on different trucks, whereupon the pieces would be assembled according to the blueprints of design. Moving an entire house down the highway was possible, but much less efficient. And so it was with the information comprising any document, program, or database. The IMPs connected to each mainframe would process an outgoing document by chopping it up into standardized data packets, each labeled with a header describing its correct position upon the document's reassembly at the receiving IMP. The brilliance of packet switching was that even massive amounts of data, when chopped up, would efficiently flow through the informational fishnet, each packet traveling a different route so as not to overload any one node on the network. As the internet grew and more data was transferred, packet switching would ensure the most efficient saturation of the network's communication lines. Bottlenecks would be avoided, and data would easily reroute around any localized failures, like water flowing around rocks in a river. Designing and building the imps that could handle all this work Interfacing with host mainframes, disassembling and reassembling data files, and sending and receiving the constituents of those files accurately across the network was deemed impossible by some of the nation's biggest technology companies including IBM and AT&T. But a relatively small computer company from Cambridge, Massachusetts took on the challenge and succeeded. The firm of Bolt, Baranek and Newman, BBN, delivered the first imp to UCLA in September 1969, less than two months after Neil Armstrong's walk on the moon, and in so doing, changed history perhaps even more profoundly by establishing the very first node of the Internet. It became functional once node number two went online when Stanford University received the second IMP one month later. Two more sites were up and running before the end of the year, one at the University of Utah and one at the University of California, Santa Barbara. These original four nodes of the Internet were chosen for their pioneering work in computer engineering. Countless wrinkles in computer networking remained to be ironed out, and it was hoped that these four leading centers of research would most effectively steward the Internet's uncertain early growth. In March of 1970, the first cross-country link was established, connecting UCLA and Los Angeles to BBN's corporate headquarters outside Boston. Just over 100 years had passed since the nation's first transcontinental railroad line had opened, and now the lines of the internet were beginning to spread exponentially. Two years on and 29 nodes were on the net, and by 1974, there were 50. Most of this original growth, however, fell far below the radar of average Americans. The NET of the 1970s was still a child of advanced research, and throughout that time even the majority of computer engineers failed to notice or understand its potential. But one application in particular would start to popularize the NET in a way that no one foresaw. While the champions of networking throughout ARPA and academia touted time-sharing and research collaboration as the ideals of the venture, in reality, a much more mundane category of connection, comprised of everyday notes about weather, hobbies, games and gossip, constituted the majority of digital traffic. Email started as a whimsical program hack by a BBN engineer named Ray Tomlinson in 1971. Having grown frustrated by the lengthy existing protocol of defining the recipients of his outgoing memos, Tomlinson reprogrammed the specifications for electronic addresses on the net so they were nested more simply in the now infamous at sign email grew to comprise three-quarters of net traffic before the end of the decade. For all the research collaboration the Internet promised, people were clearly attracted to the simpler prospect of having a novel way of talking to each other. By the late 1970s, computer enthusiasts across the world were getting online. America's network, then still called the ARPANET, was by far the largest, but computer networks were budding all across Europe too, in England, France, Germany, and Norway. The logical next step was to connect these networks together, a network of networks, a true internet. And, just like the IMPs had been needed to translate the operations between mainframes a decade earlier, another new specialized computer called a Gateway was now needed to translate the operations between networks. The main differences between the networks were their data packet size and transmission rate standards. A professor of computer engineering at Stanford University named Vint Cerf and an electrical engineer at ARPA named Bob Kahn led the effort to design the gateway system, which they called the Transmission Control Protocol TCP. TCP worked well for a while, but as the number of computers on the internet grew, the protocol had to be modified to more efficiently route translated data to the right computer. With thousands or even millions of new computers connecting to the Internet, a more sustainable computer address system was going to become critical. So Cerf, Khan and their colleagues added a secondary protocol to the gateway called, simply enough, Internet Protocol IP. As of 1978, TCP-IP, as it was known, was in place to allow for exponential growth of the Internet going forward. Every new computer online would have its own unique IP address and could talk to any other computer on any other network in the world through TCP translation. The Internet, with a capital I, was now no longer just a dream. With the network architecture of a reliable and scalable Internet well in place by the end of the 1970s, one of the only major remaining obstacles to mainstream enthusiasm was a user-friendly portal to access it. Through the early 1980s, using a computer generally required typing relatively complicated codes into what was called its command-line interface, an uninspiring effort that made using a computer feel like a chore with all the drudgery of data entry. Xerox was the company that invented a radical solution to this problem. At its research center in Palo Alto, California, Xerox engineers devised a whole new way to interact with computers in the early 1980s called the graphical user interface which simulated a real-world desktop on-screen, complete with a mouse to manipulate simulated desktop icons like folders and an outgoing mailbox. And although Xerox failed to successfully market their computer, Apple ran with the idea and succeeded with the Macintosh, which debuted a few years later in 1984 personal computer use really took off thereafter and as thousands and eventually millions of people clamored each year to get online better software and hardware to navigate the net formed a whole new entrepreneurial frontier that did much to power America's exceptional economic growth in the 1990s By 1990, the insights of millions of people from across the world were being put online, but many Internet users experienced it all as a kind of digital tower of Babel, where the growing volume of information was as much a liability as a strength. Going online was like entering a vast library labyrinth with no official catalog, map, or signs. Fed up with the chaos, a data scientist named Tim Berners-Lee wrote a suite of new software in 1991 featuring hypertext markup language, HTML, to more intuitively link sites and categories to each other. This formed the basis of what Berners-Lee envisioned as a worldwide web of pages interlinked according to content. Because his scheme mirrored the way that most people think, with ideas online branching off of one another according to their contextual associations, the World Wide Web became a runaway success, with millions of new users surfing along its waves of hyperlinked text. And World Wide Web browsers, beginning with Mosaic and Netscape in 1994, were like souped-up new surfboards offering ever more appealing panels of controls and search functions. 16 million people across the world were using the Internet by 1995. 360 million people were online at the turn of the 21st century, and by 2005, the number exceeded a billion. Then in 2016, the Great Threshold was crossed. Nearly 4 billion minds were connecting and collaborating in the Forum of Cyberspace that year, which meant that the majority of the human population was interacting on a single platform for the first time in our species' history. Out of a Cold War that had once fractured civilization had come the Internet, which was bringing it back together. The rise of the Internet over the past generation has fundamentally reshaped the human experience. Centuries from now, our descendants may look back upon this very time, upon our very own generation, as a great historical divide. What we learned in the past was hard to preserve, and the best we could hope for was to put our insights into books or legends that a precious few in the future might read or retell before the detritus of time submerged it forever. What we learn from now on can be immortalized online, spread infinitely far and accessed an infinite number of times. Decades, centuries, even millennia could pass, but your thought, your moment, your greatest contribution to the human conversation will be but a search term away and immaculately preserved for any future inquiring mind. No dust need be blown off it. It will be just as it was at the moment of conception. As long as there is an Internet, then, The ideas of one can be the ideas of all. A great power that's only just now been grasped after a hundred thousand years of reaching. If you enjoy this podcast, please help me spread the word. You can leave reviews on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you happen to listen. You can share it on Facebook and Twitter. You can discuss it on your own podcast or blog. And of course, you can personally tell your family and friends about it. A lot of people are still unfamiliar with podcasts, and maybe you could help them get started with how it began. For more information on this episode, including a select bibliography, visit howitbegan.com. I'm Brad Harris. So long.